Father God, would you be our teacher this morning? We desperately need wisdom from your word, wisdom from you, uh, empowerment by your spirit to be a people who distinctly represent Jesus Christ. Would you help us love you and love people the way we should and the way we are called to? Um, Guide us in our thinking and our reflections this morning, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you just a couple of questions. Tell me what the Christian position on gun control is. Uh, Tell me what the Christian position on dealing with issues of poverty in our nation are. Do you... Do you have a Christian position on that? Tell me what the Christian position on the legal abortion that we have at present in our country. What is the Christian position on public education versus private education versus things like vouchers and things like that? What is the Christian position on affirmative action, which has been around now actually for many, many years? Are we for that? Is a Christian against that? What's the Christian position when it comes to issues around immigration, those that are here illegally? What is the Christian perspective and position on organizations like Black Lives Matter or the protests or the riots that have been happening this summer? You know what I found? I found that Jesus followers have different opinions about these things. How is that possible Should that even be that Christians can have differences of opinion on some of these things? Is there anything that the Bible says about politics that all Christians can accept, should accept? Well, politics and citizenship, these are interesting things. Because if you follow Jesus and you are a citizen of the United States, you have two citizenships. One in Jesus' kingdom and one, of course, in the United States. And let me be clear, these two citizenships are not one and the same. They never have been. In fact, sometimes they're in direct conflict with each other, especially since uh, the United States is a pluralistic society when it comes to faith, when it comes to religion. Our First Amendment makes that so. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We are a nation with glorious freedoms, more freedoms than most people in the history of nations have ever enjoyed. And we should cherish and do all that we can to protect those freedoms. We should do everything we can to ensure that all citizens of this country experience those freedoms. Politics in the United States is very much about those freedoms. Politics is the art or the science of government. Good government is essential to a healthy, functioning, flourishing society. And the Bible says, of course, that God made the institution of government. It's an institution for all people, communists and capitalists, monarchists and socialists, democracies and dictatorships. God made them all. Bible scholars point out that the institution of government uh, is implied in what David Van Drunen calls the common covenant, this covenant that God made through Noah, but with all mankind. Uh, That was a, a covenant, of course, that followed the flood, the devastation of a worldwide flood. And the uh, rainbow, as you recall, signifies, commemorates that covenant that God made with all mankind. 
And in that covenant, among other things, one of the things that come out of it is this institution called government. Government is given the job of administering justice. We see this in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, another institution that God established, obviously, is that of the church. There's an Old Testament church. There's a New Testament church, as we've studied and seen before. The church is an ecclesia. It is a gathering together of the people of God. So the church is a different kind of institution, a faith-based institution. Its members trust in God, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, embrace his teachings and his ethics. What is more, we are citizens, made citizens of his kingdom. The Apostle Paul said this, writing to the church at Ephesus, he said, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Various metaphors used to describe the body of Jesus. Citizens, fellow citizens. So, people in the church have a dual citizenship. First and foremost, their allegiance is to Jesus and to his kingdom. Uh, not any human or earthly government. And Jesus' kingdom has a different set of ethics, a different set of priorities than do earthly kingdoms. In Jesus' kingdom, we, for example, love our enemies. We forgive those who trespass against us. We show mercy. We live in a place of grace because we're constantly receiving grace. We act with kindness. We act with patience. We act gent with gentleness. Earthly kingdoms administer justice. The Apostle Paul said, writing to the Romans in chapter 13, a familiar passage, he said, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, he's referring to the ruler, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, make no mistake, the kingdoms of the world are also under God's authority and also will give an account before God's moral law. They don't function separately from God. Uh, they will be held accountable for what they do and what they should do that they don't do. And let's be honest, not all governments are created equal, obviously. Some administer justice better than others. Some allow greater freedoms than others. Some offer more opportunity than others. And I would say such is the case with our government. Far from perfect, but better than most. Now, unfortunately, all governments, you may have noticed this, are led by people. People are corrupt. People are power-hungry. People are greedy, people are sinful, people are self-centered, and that is true of all politicians, just as it is true of us. And so governments, all governments, get a lot of things wrong. Can I hear an amen? amen. A lot of things wrong. They try to fix things, but fail. They spend money on something and oftentimes wastefully. They enact laws that help one group but at the same time hurt another. And, and these are the good governments I'm talking about. Bad governments terrorize and oppress their people. 
They steal people's belongings. They consolidate power into the hands of just a few, and they abuse that power. Historically, totalitarian, dictatorial, communistic, socialistic, imperialistic governments, while on paper have great intentions, are very often very bad for the vast majority of people living under the rule. But the day is coming when all human government will end. Now that should get an amen. (laughs) The day is coming when all human government is going to end. We've studied the book of Revelation just recently, and that's the glorious news in that book. Jesus will one day reign supreme. His government will overcome, turn over, undo all earthly government. But in the meantime, we have to ask, well, how do we relate to our government until Jesus returns? And there are basically three approaches that you can take. One, you can completely disengage altogether from politics. Lots of Christians do this, and they do it for different reasons. Some are just plain exhausted by it all. Anybody here fall into that category? I can put myself into that category. I'm just exhausted by it all. Others are just disillusioned and paralyzed. They wonder if any good can get done by government that's so divided in the case of our country. Some actually believe that Christians should only focus on spiritual things, Quiet times, evangelism, worship, focusing on heaven to come. And truthfully, I I think that is a dangerous theological construct. Uh, Simply because Jesus tells us, we saw this earlier in our worship, that we are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. And while secular culture is not the same as Jesus' kingdom, it is part of, I already mentioned, the Noahic covenant, the common covenant, and what we do in it, therefore, does matter to God. And so as a church, we do seek to help the poor. We do feed the hungry. We do seek justice for those that are oppressed. That's part of what we do. And we understand that our political decisions can either bless our neighbor or curse our neighbor. And so therefore, better, I think, to be wise as we can be in the politics that we practice so as to bless our neighbor. Now that brings up another important point as an aside. If you want to follow Jesus and vote, your politics cannot be motivated solely by just what's good for you. I rarely hear this point being made. You see, your freedoms, your rights, your justice, your flourishing, your money, your stuff, your personal comfort and convenience, your politics must be about more than just that. Your politics and practice thereof ought to promote the well-being of your neighbor. But back to the first point there. Some Christians are so disillusioned by government and politics that they have completely disengaged. That's that's one response that you'll see out there on the landscape. A second group of Christians, I would say, have the exact opposite perspective. This group, I would say, is obsessed with politics. I mean, they drink the Kool-Aid of politics 24-7. I'd say they confuse, actually, the kingdoms of this world and their importance uh, you know, the common covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah, the, uh, they confuse that covenant and its importance with another covenant, the covenant that we see God advancing when he enters into a covenant with Abraham. It's a redemptive covenant. It's where God is saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's God making a people for himself. 
I'll tell you, Christians obsessed with politics, I think, mistakenly act as if their politics could usher in real and lasting justice or real and lasting righteousness or real and lasting goodness or happiness or blessedness on earth. They act as if their primary calling is to bring shalom, the peace of God, the kingdom of Jesus up there down here, as if that's their primary purpose. And so politics and social justice to this group are practically everything. And I would just say in a case like that, our politics actually becomes idolatrous. It often becomes an excuse, in fact, to ridicule, to judge, to dismiss, to revile, to hate, to slander, to verbally abuse anyone who differs with them on politics or social justice Issues And this type of an approach is almost always hurtful and unhelpful. And I would say it's always dishonoring to Jesus. There's a third group. Uh, and I would say this group is it's trying to be engaged, these Christians. They're trying to stay faithful, have integrity, follow Jesus, love their neighbor. And this group often must struggle along without clear black and white biblical indicators for deciding, you know, do we build a wall or not? Or deciding are school vouchers a good idea or are they a bad idea? Deciding are gun laws, the ones we have, good enough or do we need more? Uh, should we slap more tariffs on China or should we remove the ones that are there now? Are we doing enough to protect and clean up the environment or do we need to do more? Do we need government to take more control of the medical, pharmaceutical industries or less control? Do we need the government to mandate that all people in all places will wear masks or not? And how you answer questions like that will determine who you vote for and what party you support. In fact, of the matter, not all Christians will answer those questions the same way. And that's why not all Christians are Republicans nor are they Democrats. They just aren't. There is no Christian party. It's just messier than that. Now, this third group wants to stay engaged, wants to be good citizens and be good followers of Jesus. And therefore, politics matters to this group, but it's, it's not all-consuming to them. Their hope for the future is not wed to the politics of any party or, for that matter, any nation. They understand that politics informs policies that influence people. And, of course, God cares about what influences people, especially downtrodden people, especially oppressed people, especially people who are marginalized, people who are powerless and poor, people who do not know about Jesus. And so politics matters, and these people will engage, but they will be realistic they will be cautious. They will be sober-minded as they do and not be duped by the propaganda of all politics. I don't care what side of the aisle you're sitting on. Understand the politics that you support, a great deal of it is propaganda. It's how politics works and always, always has. These people know that at times, too, their faith and their politics are just going to collide. This is nothing new. Powerful people in politics 
have been asking Jesus' followers to compromise their faith and their beliefs since day one. It's nothing new. In Acts chapter 4, we see early Christians dealing with their government. Peter and John, you uh, probably recall this story. They've been speaking publicly about Jesus. They're on their way into the the temple area, and there is a a man born crippled there, and they they heal this man, and he goes into the temple area with them, and people are amazed, and they're teaching, of course, about Jesus. And this is what we read in Acts 4. It says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And as I said, some of you know what happens next. Peter and John, they get arrested. They're put in jail. The next day they're brought before a gathering of the elders, the rulers, the scribes, the high priest. Annas is there. This is a big, big deal. And this is what we read. It says, so they, are called, so they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So these these early believers have a decision, a big decision to make. They decide that their ultimate allegiance will be to God and that no power on earth, not even the state, and in this case, not even the religious state, was going to be allowed to usurp God's rightful authority. And so this is what they say. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So right from the very beginning, friends, Christians have a struggle with their government. And this continued to be a problem, both with the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, Locking up Christians, forbidding Christians to worship, confiscating copies of the letters that they received, the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, taking their businesses away, sometimes their homes, running them out of town, and oh yeah, just occasionally killing them. But Paul gives some extraordinary advice. You might expect with things like that going on uh, to uh, the Christian community, in the Christian community, the Christians would get together and say, man, let's just, let's overthrow the government. Let's establish a new government. Let's set up a Christian government. But of course, they don't do that. Surprisingly, Paul writes to the church at Rome, and these are his words, Romans 13. Let every person be subject, there's a word we don't like, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Swallow that. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, that word again, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. 
For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Well, this is an interesting development. Historically, of course, the people of God, the Israelites, were a nation. They had their own government, their own land, their own laws. It was a state-sponsored religion. But now Paul says there is this enormous change looking forward as the people of God. It's no longer the goal of the people of God to have their own nation. Paul says a new day is dawned. Every person is to submit to whatever state or government they are in. No exceptions, no exemptions, no withdrawals to a commune, no not paying taxes, even though you don't agree with everything the government does. The language Paul uses is we are to submit, we are to respect, we are to honor those in positions in the government. And that is how we participate in civic life if we are following Jesus. In our democracy, this means some good things, some really good things. Uh, We can try to be informed, and that's not easy because of propaganda. It's not easy to be really informed. But we can try. We can try to be informed. We can vote, and we can even promote a particular candidate or a particular cause or a particular issue. But before we do that, it would be good to be informed. Have you heard me say that yet? And again, not easy, not easy to do. A woman came up to Adelaide Stevenson. Some of you may remember that name uh, one time. He was the unsuccessful candidate, Democratic candidate for presidency twice in 52 and 56. She said, Mr. Stevenson, you have the vote of every thinking American. And Stevenson said, Madam, that's not enough. I need a majority. (laughs) Yeah, such is the case. Now, when Paul says that We're to be submissive to the government. This, of course, does not mean that he's thinking that governments are always right. Remember, Paul says this even though he has been unjustly treated multiple times by various governments. He's been repeatedly imprisoned by governments. Acts 24 tells us he was held one time for two years while the government official was waiting for him to give him a bribe. Paul was beaten. Paul was unjustly punished time and time again by government officials. Paul, of course, is deeply aware of the fact that the Roman government is who put Jesus, his Savior, his Lord, his God, on a cross and killed him. But Paul understands something else. He understands that when the government thought it was getting rid of Jesus, it was in fact being used by God to do God's will, to accomplish Jesus' mission. Point being, Paul understands who is in control. God, our God, Almighty God, is a sovereign God. He's in complete control. He raises governments up for a purpose, oftentimes one we don't understand, but he also brings those governments down when he wishes to. And so we obey our government, we pay our taxes, we follow the laws, we honor, we respect, even when laws are passed that we don't agree with. I disagree with the laws of our nation on abortion. 
I think they should be different. I disagree with our Supreme Court's 2015 decision with regards to marriage. The Obergefell versus Hodge decision, uh, the decision which made same-sex couples able to be married. I wish what they had done instead was that they had given them the rights that would have made that partnership that they have uh, more advantageous under the laws and, and kept the, the term marriage for what it has meant traditionally, but more importantly, what it means biblically. But they didn't. I disagree with where our nation is on some of the gender confusion that's going on. I disagree with the normalization of all kinds of heterosexual sin as well as homosexual sin in our nation. I, I, I can't agree with those things. But am I surprised by these laws or decisions or practices? No, I am not. I don't expect people who don't follow Jesus to believe and act like people who do. We've already seen from Acts that the Bible supports civil disobedience when rulers command us to do something that God tells us not to do or they command us to stop doing something that God tells us to do. And so as, as long as our government is not requiring us to have abortions or requiring us to marry same-sex couples... As long as our government is letting us speak the truth that we believe, well, okay, I can obey my government. Paul's principle is this, pay to all what is owed to them. And when there are two great commandments, you know them. Love God, that's number one. If the government tells me ever to do something which is going to not be loving God, I'm going to have to say no. I'm also to love my neighbor. I'm to pay to all what is owed to them. And so I submit, I respect, I will honor. That is the principle that applies to all Jesus followers, regardless what nation we inhabit. And so for us, we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom, and we are citizens of the United States. But let's keep our priorities clear and straight. And let's be clear that the two are not one and the same. C.S. Lewis wrote once that one of the primary strategies of the evil one is to promote a, a way of thinking that says Christianity and. In other words, the evil one cannot get people to outright reject Christianity. So plan B, will, he will try to get us to connect Christianity to something else, right? To get us to fuse it with some movement, some philosophy, some cause, some political uh, movement. So that then it's no longer just mere Christianity. It's Christianity and. When we equate our Christian faith with a, a particular political ideology or agenda, uh, it can be very dangerous and very wrong. It's if it becomes Christianity and the Republican Party, one and the same, you know, oh, Christianity and the Democratic Party, Christianity and Black Lives Matter, Christianity and white supremacy. Dangerous stuff. It's happened many times, unfortunately, throughout the history of the church. You know, once upon a time, long, long ago, it was the church and the Roman Empire, one and the same, right? 
It was the church and the British Empire. It was the church and the Netherlands. It was the church and Nazi Germany. And so we just need to be clear on this. Crystal clear. You see, the mission of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, transcends every country, every political party, every political cause. And it stands over them with the sole, authoritative, judging word of God. We bring the word of God to assess any political movement, party, philosophy, cause. The community that expresses God's dream for this world, too, is oddly enough, the church. (laughs) As utterly imperfect as we are, you see, it's not any nation, it's not any culture, it's not any society or race or cause or movement. All these things have at times their place and can do good things, but they are not the bride of Christ. And when nations dry up and wither away, which is what happens to nations. It is the church that through all eternity will be the cherished object of God's love. Augustine, great Christian thinker of the 4th and 5th century, when Rome was sacked in 410 AD, uh, people were panicked. You know, Rome was this, this center of the, uh, of the Christian faith. Now, really, the, the real power was in Constantinople at this time. Augustine was living in northern Africa in a city called Hippo. But when Rome fell, the whole uh, Christian empire of Rome looked at what was going on and wondered, how can this possibly be? Rome is being overrun by pagan barbarians. And many people wondered if this was the beginning of the end of the world How could Rome fall? And this is what Augustine said. He said, all earthly cities are vulnerable. Men build them. Men destroy them. At the same time, there is the city of God that men did not build and cannot destroy and which is everlasting. And he's right. It is of very, very, I think, significant importance that there were certain things you just couldn't get Jesus to do. In John chapter 6, there was this time in his life, he had just fed 5,000. Actually, it was many more, but there were 5,000 men uh, with just a few loaves and a few fish. And the people wanted to make him king. And it's easy to understand why they would, because if he could take a few loaves uh, of bread and and a few fish and feed 5,000 plus people, imagine what he could do with one sword or one chariot or one horse. He could arm a nation. And there was a movement in Jesus' day. They were called zealots. Simon, one of Jesus' apostles, one of the 12, was from this group of zealots. And the zealots wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. Why not? It's an evil government. It's an oppressive government to Jews and later to followers of Jesus. Well, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, this is what we read in John 6, verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I would love to have heard 
his prayers and his conversation with his heavenly father in that moment. You see, Jesus was not going into politics. It simply wasn't his business. It wasn't his mission. It wasn't then, it's not now. His business was to save sinners. And I know that that sounds too restrictive. That's too small. That's too small a view of the gospel. Well, no, it's not. Jesus' business is is many things. It's first and foremost loving God, and God is about making a people for himself. Now, it is also about loving your neighbor. But loving our neighbor doesn't mean building kingdoms here on earth. Jesus' business is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven, which has many implications. And he was not going to be turned aside. He was not going to set up just another earthly kingdom. So let me say a word now about Deer Creek. Because as a church, we sometimes receive criticism or we get pressure for not aligning the church in some formal way with a certain political party or a political movement or a political cause. And this one we just might as well get clear on. Because I don't think this is going to change. We are in the business, the mission, the purpose of the gospel. We are in the business of being the church, living out of the truth of who Jesus is and the transformation that he can do in a human heart. But we're in the business of the gospel, in the business of being the church. We're in the business of proclaiming in word and deed the good news of the availability of life in the kingdom of heaven. We are in the business of proclaiming Jesus Christ, our matchless teacher, our crucified Savior, our risen Lord, who is coming again. And we will not deviate from this. We will not be distracted from this. We will not be turned aside from this. And we will not be stopped from this. And we do this with no apologies and no hesitations and no second thoughts. We are in the business of the gospel and making disciples of Jesus Christ. There was a man, he's deceased now, his name is Jacques Ellul, wrote a book called Political Illusion. It's about the illusion in our day that there is a political solution for every problem in life. And that is a widespread error today in our thinking. It's promoted by politicians of every party, every stripe. When is the last time you heard a politician say, well, you know, this problem we, we just can't fix. We don't have a solution for this. <laughs> I venture to say you've never heard a politician say that because they won't get elected if they say that. People want to hear politicians tell them that they have a solution for all of their problems. And that's just ridiculous, friends. It's ridiculous. Case in point, several cases in point. We fought a war. It was called the Civil War. That war was to end racism and slavery. Well, did it? If you know anything about sharecropping after that war ended and all of the laws that surrounded it in the South, some of which later on became uh, known as Jim Crow laws, well, you know then that slavery did not end. Even after the war. 
even after new legislation. After the Great Depression, which began in 29 and went on into the 30s, uh, FDR touted the New Deal. Its goals were to the relief uh, for the unemployed and the poor, uh, recovery of the economy, and reform for the financial system, which did need reform. Historians today still debate whether it accomplished any of those goals. It's often pointed out that it took two world wars to end the cycles that helped to create that depression. And regardless what you believe, one thing is certain, regardless what you believe, the New Deal programs didn't fix anything. Not for long. In the 1960s, we fought another war. We called it the War on Poverty. And we were trying to create what Lyndon Johnson called the Great Society, you might remember. He said he was finishing what the New Deal had left undone. And the main goals of that political movement were ending poverty, reducing crime, abolishing racial inequality, and improving the environment. Question, were any of those goals achieved? The government spent many, many billions of dollars. Did the politics of that season fix anything? Just recently, we spent $300 billion to stimulate the economy in the shadow of this pandemic. And I guess we're going to do it again. Well, you know, how did that work? What did that fix? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying that no good came of any of these governmental efforts or programs. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there are some things that politics cannot fix and never will. In fact, no political party is ever going to usher in Jesus' kingdom here on earth. No nation is going to usher in Jesus' kingdom here on earth. Chuck Colson, a name some of you would be familiar with, you know, he was a political operative for Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal. Ended up going to prison. While he was in prison, he became a Christian. He started the organization called Prison Fellowship. Well, he used to later say, and quite accurately, he, he would remark that the kingdom of God is not going to arrive on Air Force One. And he is dead right. Not going to happen. The thing for us to be real clear on is this. The kingdom of God will arrive when the king arrives. When Jesus returns. Until then, regardless what kind of government we have, we are in the business as a church of preaching, proclaiming the gospel, and being the church, being the kind of people Jesus wants us to be. The gospel, you see, is the only thing that changes people from the inside out. Now, something else I think we need to consider as we try to follow Jesus and practice good politics and do this responsibly. This is all over the New Testament. And that is that we are to honor our leaders. We are to honor and respect those who govern us. We already looked at Romans 13. The Apostle Peter said, honor everyone. <laughs> Love the brotherhood, those in the church. Fear God, honor the emperor. And when Peter wrote those words, he almost certainly was referring to the emperor who was later going to put him to death. Paul said, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified 
in every way. And I just, you know, this is the completest thought. I ought to develop it in a sermon. But I notice he, he doesn't say so that we can transform our cities. Blah, 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 whatever that means. So He says so that we can lead a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Have you ever noticed that people tend to behave badly toward those that they disagree with politically? Have you noticed this? One of my favorite characters, Winston Churchill, you know, he had some notorious uh, interludes with various individuals. Nancy, uh, Lady Nancy Astor was one of them, the first female in British Parliament. Their exchanges were epic and, and uh, probably some of them legendary. But one time, I guess she said to him, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your coffee. And some of you know what he said back. He said, Lady Astor, if you were my wife, I would drink it, you know. <laughs> Another time she said to him, Mr. Churchill, you're very drunk. And, and he said, that's true, uh, but you are very ugly. And in the morning, I shall be indisputably sober. You know, really wonderful exchanges back and forth. Thoughtful, loving, gentle, forgiving. Here's my point. People just tend to get hostile with those with whom they disagree politically. I've noticed. I've noticed this in me. But friends, if you follow Jesus, things like slander and deceit and ridicule and belittling and mocking, they're not okay. Not if you're following Jesus. Disagreeing with someone politically, sure, that's fine. Absolutely. As long as we remain truthful, as long as we remain respectful. And I'm just wondering, how many here have ever transgressed in this area? Public confession. Oh, not all of you. Others of you have a problem with lying. Yeah. <laughs> so here's something that helps me in this. And that is to remember that everyone engaging in political dialogue is a morally bankrupt person. All of us are biased. We are opinionated. We are selfish. We have blind spots. Uh, not just our political opponents. We are right there with them. I need to remember the truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Republicans and Democrats alike. Therefore, as a follower of Jesus, I must engage in political thought and action under the shadow of the cross or under the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, my political discussions will involve a kind of self-righteous smugness and mean-spiritedness that's utterly unlike Jesus. Philip Yancey wrote a very thoughtful book many years ago, The Jesus I Never Knew, and in it he makes this observation. He says, regardless of the merits of a given issue, whether a pro-life lobby on the right or a peace and justice lobby on the left, political movements risk pulling onto themselves the mantle of power that smothers love. From Jesus, I learned that whatever the activism I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility. That is a great insight. Our political activity must not drive out love and humility. When we speak what we believe to be the truth and we do it without love and without humility, we betray Jesus and his kingdom. So when we express our beliefs about the definition of marriage or human sexuality or something like abortion, all areas, by the way, where we currently find ourselves at odds with our culture and our society, 
But as we speak about those issues and we speak what we think is the biblical truth about them, and as we do that with clarity, we have also got to do it with love and humility. Acknowledging our own culpability and sin when we're pointing out theirs. See, that's what living under the shadow of the cross means. Thinking carefully, being thoughtful, honoring people, having debate with humility. Knowing that on some issues there will be differences among even well-intended followers of Jesus. Let's be gracious with each other. Differences about how to solve problems, and we need to be okay with that. We need to handle those differences in ways that honor Jesus. So here's the deal. (laughs) May God help us. Because this is not easy. No, let me change that. This is impossible. Because anywhere that I'm right and you disagree with me, I'm pretty certain you're wrong. I got to go back. What do the scriptures say about me? My hardness of heart. I'm not, I'm not saying truth is relative. There, there is right and there is wrong. And I am right and you are wrong. <laughs> but if I'm going to act that way, I'm not really honoring Jesus. Not even doing justice to the gospel. The truth about me, the truth about him. So anyway, may God help us as we try to live out of our two citizenships. Amen? Pray with me. God, would you please bless this country in which we live? Would you forgive us our many, many sins? Would you bring a a new birth of community to this nation? Would you bring about repentance and reconciliation and restoration? Could we see, Lord, spiritual revival take place in this nation? Spiritual revival that would change hearts and affect actions and cause there to be compassion and humility with people deal with people. God, would you bring about equality and justice for all people living within our borders? Lord, how we need wisdom, how those who lead us need wisdom. We pray for them all that you would pour out light and truth and wisdom and discernment and grace and courage and selflessness so that our leaders would do what best serves others and not just what serves their political agendas. Father, we pray for our church, this church, through your spirit. Would you protect the unity and the purity of your church? Would you help us to work for the good of all who live in our communities? Would you help us to love and serve and live in the shadow of the cross? God, help us remember what is required of us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you. And Father, help us to remember that this, your church, is the hope of the world as we embrace and proclaim the message, the good news of the gospel. This we pray and much more. Much more, Lord. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.